0: continue building, continue like improving, listening to customer feedback, adding features where needed, like removing features where needed and just keep improving and and polishing the product. And, you know, as long as you keep your eye on the problem and you really do deeply understand the problem and you're listening to customers and what they're telling you, like, you know, you'll get there eventually, you just need to keep building.
1: Welcome to SaaS origin stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves.
2: Today, I have Derek Good from Ignition. Welcome to the show, Derek.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Phil. Excited to jam on this stuff.
2: Yeah, I'm super excited. I was looking at your background before the show and, and I'm sure you have a lot to share. It's going to be a fun chatting with you. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so, first question for you, it's what problem does Ignition solve?
0: Yeah. So we, I mean, we actually solve a few different problems, you know, depending on the the person that we're talking to, but, you know, end of the day, it's really about like, how do you actually build a repeatable go-to-market process, you know, within a company, you know, and, and basically create more alignment between product and go-to-market teams. So, you know, we help people to structure a repeatable process and then, you know, create more visibility and transparency for all the cross-functional teams that need, you know, information throughout the launch process, whether you're launching new products or new features, and, you know, we make all of that stuff easier by connecting context to that content, you know, because we have research tools baked into the process that help you collect competitive insight, customer research. So basically, you know, we help you launch things all the way, f- manage the launch process all the way from end to end, from concept all the way through post-launch measurement.
2: That's, that's cool. So, and what's your background and how do you come up with the idea to build a product to solve the go-to-market problem?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, so my background, you know, I basically have run product and product marketing teams kind of throughout Silicon Valley for most of my career. So, you know, early on, I was a PM at PlayStation launching big AAA games. And then, you know, ever since I've been, you know, around venture backed startups. So I did a lot of early stage stuff, running marketing teams, ended up running marketing across an incubator in BBVA, which is a big Spanish bank. And then, you know, stood up the product marketing team at Rippling and help them scale up to a $7 billion valuation from seed. And essentially, you know, like through that whole process, I've I've launched hundreds of things, whether they're products or features or campaigns or events. And in that process, basically like every single time that I've had to build this process, I've, I've had to hack it together with a bunch of tools that are not really built around the workflow that exists when you're launching stuff. And it just was never very efficient, was never very effective. And cross-functional teams never really knew what was going on, despite, you know, my best efforts to communicate across the team. And there's so many founders that were asking me about, like, how do we build a go-to-market strategy? You know, like, what's the right process to figure out to launch stuff? And and there's so much bad information out there about it that, you know, basically, I decided to productize the the process that I had, you know, refined over the course of, you know, 15 years or so. And all the many, many templates and and uh, and processes that i had collected from other you know marketing leaders and so basically it was it was solving personal pain you know i as a product marketer i was like i don't have any tools that are built around the way that i actually do my work and you know launching things is hard it's an incredibly painful problem for every single company and it's one of those things that like when companies go through it they think they're going to have a really smooth launch and they go do it. And then, you know, inevitably the first one or two or three launches that they do flop and, you know, they, they don't end up driving the revenue impact that they want. And so, and they realize like how dysfunctional the process is internally. And so, you know, basically it was, it was all personal pain. And I was like, you know, I know that this is a problem at every single company in every single vertical, you know, it's like impacts tech companies and CPG companies and entertainment companies, like, cause I've worked in all of them. And, so, you know, it seemed like a big opportunity to solve and, you know, something that I personally wanted to have better tools around as well.
2: And even like in, in, that's that's amazing because most founders, I would say, build a product for their own a pain. And it's kind of like what you're doing. But it's cool that you were working like pretty big companies, like maybe you helped them become big companies. And it's still that problem was there. Still, they didn't have a solution for this problem that you were trying to solve.
0: I would say it's arguably worse at big companies. Like I, I've done this at startups and I've done it at big companies. And you know, the, the challenges only get exponentially harder when you talk about a bigger company because you have more teams involved. You have more stakeholders who need to get get aligned around the problem. You have like more data that you need to go sift through in order to collect research. And so, you know, it all just becomes harder the bigger you get. And I feel like, you know, a lot of the bigger companies that I've worked in, they're still doing this stuff in like spreadsheets and docs, which is just a dumpster fire. It's a really messy way of doing it. And, you know, startups, at least because they are able to build their stack from the start, you know, they at least have some slightly better tools oftentimes that they're using around this stuff. And, you know, they may be, you know, not that they don't have quite the scale of pain uh, around launching things. But, yeah, it's, I mean, I've run into this at two person companies. I've run into this at, you know, multiple thousand person companies.
2: Makes total sense. And how did you fund the build of the product?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, we basically like built our MVP. I mean, so our, our MVP was functionally like really my process that I'd built in the past, which I had, you know, hacked together through a bunch of different types of tools. But in the actual incarnation of Ignition, we basically built a prototype. We hired a designer that, you know, my co-founder and I basically just out of pocket, ended up paying for a designer for a few weeks to spin up some prototypes around you know what the product experience would look like we went and put that in front of a couple of customers potential customers that you know we had never met a couple of them were excited enough to say hey like we would buy we would definitely buy this they also then a couple of them offered to invest because they were so excited about the vision for what we were building and you know a lot of them were product marketers that had experienced all the same problems they're like hey like you know i've never had any tools built for me and so, you know, a couple of them offered to invest and then that turned into us like going out and kicking off an actual fundraise process. And so we raised, you know, a small pre-seed round in 2020, uh, 2021, just a couple of months after we we spun up the prototype. So that was basically how we funded the early development. And then, you know, we raised a little bit more money a little bit later. But, you know, essentially it was it was just get some kind of customer commits, go, you know, off of a prototype and then, you know, go raise the money that we needed in order to build the build the product itself.
2: And did you quit your job to do this full time when you start building the prototype or you build a prototype working your job? And then after you got the funding, how was the process?
0: Yeah. So I, I mean, I quit my job before ever even landing on this as the idea that I wanted to build. So I knew that I wanted to start a company. I had quit my job and I basically, you know, this was the idea that I originally had planned on starting, but I I spent some time in the middle there, kind of exploring a bunch of different spaces to make sure that this was really the problem that I wanted to commit to solving for the next you know few years of my life. So I was already full time. My co-founder at the time was still working for Facebook, and so he spent you know the first probably six months or so of the company building still employed full time, and you know basically then I was full time from the start. And so I didn't leave to start this idea, but I did leave and then start this idea.
2: <laughs> you left to start a, a business, you're left. Like,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Time
2: of my life that I'm gonna build something. I didn't know exactly what yet. Exactly. That's kind of like, you made that transition. I, I would imagine that you were to a point in your personal life financially that you could afford to do that, to just leave. And like, okay, I'm gonna focus on my next venture here.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, had a, I've had a pretty good career. And so, you know, I, I was, I wasn't by no means was I like super financially comfortable doing that, but you know I, I was able to at least take a little bit of time and explore, and I did a little bit of consulting on the side while I was while I was doing that to help pay the bills. So you know I, I had I, I didn't have zero revenue co- or zero income coming in because I was doing a little bit of consulting as well, but yeah, it was, it was basically like you know I knew that this was something I wanted to do. I actually I actually did move home with my parents for a period of time there in the middle to like lower my personal burn rate. So, you know, I was living at home, not spending on rent, you know, while we were in the very very early like nascent stages before we raised money. But,
2: yeah. So That's a great story. How long from the day you left your job to the day you like commit to this idea? This is what I'm going to build now. Or how long was the process?
0: So, I think we basically I left my job in middle of 2020 and I met my co-founder in December of 2020. So there's probably about six months between, you know, when I left and when, when we actually like decided this is the thing that we actually want to like spin up a project around. At the time we, you know, we went and hired this designer and we basically spun up, you know, the prototype and that we weren't like fully committed to this idea yet. We were basically just testing and validating it and seeing if there were people that we could get to, you know, say, Hey, yeah, I'll buy that thing. And so, I would say it was another two or two and a half months between then and when we actually like formed a company around it, started the thing and said, we're whole hog going at this thing. So it was probably, you know, soup to nuts about, you know, eight to eight to nine months from when I you know left left my job to when I actually like fully formed the company and committed to building this thing.
2: And as a good product person, you are not married to the idea until you fully validate it. You're like, I don't know if you're going to build this. Let's test it. Let's prototype. You, you have a product background. Your product manager, like, you start a, in product, a PlayStation. So you're like, okay, is this a real problem uh, that people going to pay money for?
0: Yeah, and I mean, so we definitely that, like we probably were. Somewhere in the middle, like we weren't fully like, hey, we're going to just, you know, go validate anything. And it's like, whatever sticks, sticks. We did, you know, we were a little married to this idea. But we definitely, you know, said, hey, we're not fully committing to this thing until we have like validated that this isn't just personal pain. It's also, you know, pain that other people are feeling. So yeah, we definitely we definitely, you know, approach it from the perspective of like, look, we need to make sure this is a real problem that, you know, people like really do want to, you know, buy a solution to before we go out and build.
2: Walk me through the process now of like actually building the product. So you guys have a validated prototype. Yeah. So how was the building and like all the way to your first customer? Like how how did that go?
0: Yeah, so I mean, building was, uh, it took us longer than we expected. I think that's like, you know, every entrepreneur's experience when they're building SaaS is like, you know, it takes you a lot longer than you think it's going to take. And that this was coming from like, two people who had built a lot of product in the past. And so, you know, I think we built our MVP, we spent, you know, we originally kind of budgeted between like, you know, three to four months to build that. And I think it ended up taking us like something closer to like seven or eight months. So about twice as long as we we forecasted we shipped the first version of the product to a bunch of alpha customers. The first version of the product really sucked and yeah you know, like that's often you know the case with with many people um, you know when you're building and so we discovered a lot of like things that you know the designer that we had end up like building prototype with like was much more of a UI designer than a UX designer and so there were a lot of like little micro UX issues that you know kind of killing the experience and so we ended up actually like basically scrapping almost the whole first version of the product that we built. And kind of re-architected the product quite a bit based off of, you know, early customer feedback with those alpha design partners. And, you know, like through that process, we were trying to kind of show people designs, get their feedback on those designs as we were kind of like building it out so that, you know, it wasn't just like flying by the seat of our pants and, you know, building what we thought was important. We were trying to actually collect real customer feedback through that process. And then, you know, essentially like towards towards the end, we shipped a beta version in... January of 21, um, you know, just kind of a closed beta. And that version had significantly evolved already from like the first version of the product. The first version of the product was functionally just a doc that had like the ability for you to modularly kind of send status updates to cross functional teams that needed like just bits and pieces of the information in the launch plan. And so by that point, you know, we had built a lot more integration into product roadmaps to help handoffs from product teams. And so the the product evolved a ton and yeah, you know, we like one of our superpowers as a company is luckily that we are able to build a lot of product really fast. And so, you know, we've drastically evolved the product over even the last year, added a ton more functionality and like really grown from just a, you know, what was originally like a pretty narrow point solution into you know a full-blown platform. So you know, so it it was, uh, but it was it was a process. We ended up hiring, uh, like a lot of the early build was done through an external agency that we hired. You know, and then um, we ended up hiring our own internal devs over the couple of months that we were building that initial MVP. But, but yeah, it was, it so, was a process. There's so much
2: to to unpack here. First, I would like to unpack like your strategy around alpha customers and beta customers. Like, did you charge them? Where did you find those people? And, and how did you get the feedback? From them, because I feel like there was a lot of learning there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so finding them like it was just cold, cold pinging people on LinkedIn and, you know, asking my network. I explicitly did not want like alpha or beta customers who were like within my network because I wanted to you know see if I could sell this thing to strangers and like if strangers had the problem. You know so I tried to avoid like going friends and because I knew that friends would just be like too gentle and you know too too kind of like they'd protect my feelings too much around you know what we'd built. So you know we went to strangers and just kind of pinged them on LinkedIn and was like, hey, you know, like we're bu- we're thinking about building a thing around this space. Like, you know, curious if you'll jump on a call and like just tell us about your pain points and like give us a little bit of insight, you know, maybe if it ends up interesting, like we'd love to have you design as a design partner. We did not charge for any of the early design partners. And, I, you know, we basically were free all the way through 2020 and a large portion of 2021, actually. And I think that, like, we somewhat regret that. Like, I think we would have preferred to have charged upfront. We weren't really familiar with, like, what the process looked like to kind of charge upfront before building. And so, you know, we just kind of, like, opted to build something and like look more at usage and say hey like you know if this thing's sticky and being used then you know we'll start monetizing it later we did you know like try and gut check with people like kind of what would you generally be willing to pay for something like this and you know try and get a sense for what they were already spending but we weren't charging those early folks with the alpha we tried to keep it very narrow and so we only focused on the people that we had like done early discovery calls with and like heard about their pain points and then shipped like the product that we told them that we build. we built we're like okay hey like you told us all these pain points we've shown you a couple of designs on this you've given some feedback we just built the thing like do you want to go use this and you know we basically like got some feedback where it was like yes absolutely we're ready to do it we got some where it was like oh no like that's not quite what you know it's not quite solving the problem yet you know it needs like xyz things and so that was when we started iterating the beta and i think you know the beta was basically like once we felt like the product was delivering value to those early design partners and we were ready for you know a larger group of people to start giving feedback on like is this a pain point that like more than you know 5 to 10 people really have like is it ready for kind of a little bit more prime time then we started just we we shipped that beta through a product hunt launch like that was basically how we got a lot of our early early beta users and then you know we started just doing some very lightweight cold email as well
2: so on the beta product now, are you charging yet, or still free the beta version?
0: Yeah, so the uh, we are charging now. I mean, so we're we're actually out of beta. So we just announced we came out of beta. Yeah, like just
2: the timeline. Yeah, just like the timeline. So you did the alpha free. Got users they help you like really improve the product. You're tracking usage. Yeah. is this actually solving a problem? People are using my product. Yep. So you go to a beta, you go on product hunt. now people are. We you have more users because you're not so limited as alpha yep so the beta you're already charging then at that point
0: yeah so the beta we the beta we had pricing live but we were not like aggressively trying to monetize people yet so you know we we had a couple of people that upgraded you know like right away in the beta but for the most part like we were not actively trying to convert people into paid users at that point so we were still focused more on usage and stickiness and is it, you know, delivering enough value that people are like coming into the product every day. So, you know, it was it was kind of like a little bit of a hybrid at that point. And then, you know, it really isn't until just recently when we started like actively trying to monetize everybody.
2: Looks like you and co-founder having a product background, you guys follow a very product-led approach from the beginning. And then you're bringing users in, but they're coming in on the free trial, like there's a free plan and then you're seeing if they're going to upgrade. But you're like going product-led out the way From the beginning, that's kind of like how how you guys did it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we, I mean, we're big believers in product-led growth. You know, I think we were both product people. So, you know, we basically were, were emphasizing, you know, like let's build something that's valuable before we start, you know, really trying to sell it. Actually, we actually did kind of like ping pong back and forth a little bit. So like in the alpha, we weren't really charging, you know, we we were forcing people to kind of go through a demo in order to use it just because the onboarding was not ready. And by the beta period, we did have like a free trial. And then like more recently, we've migrated to a full blown freemium model because the product just now has enough surface area that we can actually upsell from a freemium plan to, you know, a paid plan. So We've we've you know evolved a little bit in the in the what that PLG motion looks like, but we've been PLG from the start.
2: Uh, and so I want to, another thing that you talk about that I think is super interesting to discuss. You actually work with an agents. I own a, an agent myself that builds sales products, but I know that 95% of the products that try to build with an agency will fail. <laughs> the experience is agents are not prepared to build a new product because there's a lot of like learning, redoing, and, and there's a lot of things that, that happens. And so most people have a very bad experience when they try to hire an agent to build their, their SaaS product. How was your experience and what you would say for, for other founders that kind of like are, are considering the option? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think, you know, generally like there's pros and cons right so i mean we came we we worked with an agency that came very highly recommended from you know an, uh, another founder that my my co-founder was friends with and you know i think they were effective at building quickly i think you know the nice thing about our problem space is like we had a lot of domain expertise so you know we had pretty clear vision for the thing that we needed to build and so we were able to be pretty tightly spec'd in what needed to get built we definitely went through a lot of growing pains early on in just like shifting the culture from, you know, build to perfection first, and to more of like, you know, lean startup style, like, hey, we're going to iterate on this thing a lot. And we're going to be changing things constantly, which was which was a cultural shift for the agency that we were working with, who, you know, like, oftentimes, you know, I think when you're talking about agencies, they're very used to working with, Larger corporates where, you know, the time, like it's a very clearly specced product that needs to get built and, you know, like they almost don't care about iterating on it over time. And so, you know, you just kind of build the first version and like the goal is to make sure that it's ultra stable out of the gate. I think our goal was like not be ultra stable out of the gate. It was build, you know, and test things quickly, get, you know, minimum viable versions of things live, see what was resonating and sticking with people. And so, you know, we definitely experienced, you know, some, some kind of like thrash on that. And like, it's, we're still working with the agency as well. So like, they still continue to kind of like augment our team. And I think we've, you know, gradually kind of improved process there. But yeah, it was, I mean, you know, I'm not going to say it was like a perfectly like not bumpy road, but, you know, I think it uh, worked okay for at least getting an MVP out the gate. And, you know, the alternative would have been us just, you know, hiring people internally, which would have taken longer. We wouldn't have actually gotten anything built for a while. And so, you know, that that didn't really seem like a viable option.
2: I think that's like, you're going to have problems either way, right? Because if you try to get your own team in place, then you, you know that you're going to have to go to the forming, performing, norming, until you get to the team to actually be able to produce anything. So it, it's going to take months to get there, but also working with an agent, because most agents have that culture. And I think what really worked for you guys was you were a product person, and you could really help steer that culture to be a more product. This is how we build products. That's how we launch products. It's different than building something for a big enterprise and that's kind of like the space that my agency specialize we, we like that's the space that we like so our culture is more to work with founders um, like yourself so moving on what's kind of like the first oh shit moment that comes to mind from the early days of building your SaaS?
0: yeah i mean i think like it's a good question i mean so pause on the positive note the first oh shit moment was honestly when we were like talking to our first investor, Mike Polner at, at uh, Uber. And so he was running the, the Uber Eats product marketing team. We had no idea if anybody wanted this thing. And, you know, like basically the very first call, the, the call that we had with him, like, you know, we were kind of like bouncing the prototypes off of him and we we're just looking for feedback. We weren't actually acting actively like looking for even him to commit as a customer. we were just like, Hey, can you like, tell us what you think about this? And he was like, so jazzed about it, but he, you know, he asked to invest and we were like, Oh wow. Okay. Like this is actually a real thing. Like people actually really want this. So I think that was the first positive one. I think, you know, the first, first negative one was when we like shipped the first version of the alpha and we were like, Oh shit. Like this thing doesn't actually work very well. Like it, you know, there's so many things that we didn't account for in the like user experience. And it's like very confusing and overwhelming. And like, yeah, you know, there's just a lot of like Little things that we learned on the product front, were just like, oh, like this isn't going to work in this current incarnation. Like we need to make some significant changes here, you know, in order to be able to, in order to be able to have it be like a really viable product.
2: At that moment, when you're like, hey, people are not using this. This is not a, a good product. How do you and your co-founder kind of like? talk to yourself and work through that moment so you, you stay motivated and you stay making the changes that you need to make to get that to a successful product?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, like we just treated it very much as, you know, a triaging exercise of like, hey, what's working, what's not working? You know, like where are the gaps and like things that we need to build in order to get it to like, you know, feature parity with other tools that are in the space, like in order to get it to, you know, a, a kind of like viable point where it's really solving the problem. And so like we, we never really like lost motivation at that stage, you know, it was like, we knew that the first version of the product, like most first versions of most products don't really like work all that well. They're not quite like, they're not quite solving the problem perfectly. So we knew that that's just part of the process. And you know, I think like we both, you know, kind of like, just talk through it from that perspective. And we're like, okay, so like, you know, we've learned, what did we learn? You know, like, what are the hypotheses that we had that, you know, in this first version of the product that we shipped, and which of them are still true, which of them have been disproven, And, you know, like, what do we need to do in order to, you know, what's the next set of hypotheses that we have around, like, what's going to, you know, up-level this to a point where people actually want to use it. And so it was just a very, like, straightforward process where we're just like, okay, you know, like, here's what we learned. Here's where where there's, like, low-hanging fruit that we can improve. Here's where, you know, there's some higher impact things that are going to take a little bit longer to improve. And, you know, let's just go through a prioritization exercise there.
2: I think a big advantage that you guys had was, again, The huge product background, because you guys have done that before. You just saw this as like, this is how products are built. We place some bets. We won some, we lost some, we're going to place more bets. Uh, But like many founders that doesn't come from a product background, when that happened, it's like a huge oh shit moment, even bigger. Like for you, it was a shit moment. But for them, it's like, oh my gosh, this is going to fail. Like, what's going to happen? You're like, oh yeah. I guess we were more wrong than we thought you were. We're going to place more bets. It was that background really helped you.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it was nice that I like I hadn't been through kind of the zero to one phase with with a company before my co-founder had. And so, you know, he was able to like any time that I got nervous about that and like I did, you know, get a lot more probably a lot more anxiety than he did, you know, in those early days about like, oh, is this going to work like you know people aren't using it yet like this thing still feels like there's a lot more work to do you know like he he kind of pretty easily talked me off the ledge because he's been through those experiences and he's like you know his last company it took a long time for them to like even land their first customer and and it was just like you know continue building continue like improving listening to customer feedback you know adding features where where needed like removing features where needed and just keep like improving and, and polishing the product and you know as long as you keep your eye on the problem and you really like un- and you really do deeply understand the problem and you're listening to customers and what they're telling you like you know you'll get there eventually you just need to keep keep building <laughs>
2: Yeah, and make sure you don't run out of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's the other important
0: but, part. Yeah, just don't run out of money, but... but.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I think, again, there's a huge insight here because you had that person in your team that understood zero to one and they have been there before. And, and many founders, they don't have that person. And it's great that was your co-founder, but it could be an advisor, it could be an investor, but someone that can help you like, okay, this is how it goes. Uh, you, you know, that's, that's why people so many times go to incubators like YC because they just have done zero to one so many times could you share like a very smart decision that you made in the early days of your company and by early days it could be any time even after the beta but like what is a, a very smart decision that that you made
0: when i think about actual decisions that we made i think one of the smartest ones was that we took a very open approach to the way that we build. Like we have, a we compete across a lot of different like areas of product. And so, you know, because we are this big platform that, you know, consists of a lot of stuff and we touch a lot of organizations. And so, you know, we have always taken the approach from a design principles perspective that we want to integrate with every other tool out there and like not worry about like, you know, building a, a walled garden where, you know, it's really hard for people to get information in or out of the platform. Because we need to be flexible enough across the different cross-functional teams that are using our product. And that even extends to our pricing. Like, you know, we basically have always had like free viewer access for the platform because there's just so many teams that we need to touch and be effective in, you know, like integrating with their workflow that you know it allows us to you know have a pretty compelling story when we're talking to people relative to some of these other tools where you know like every person's a paid seat or you know they require all the information to live in their platform or they just don't integrate well with other other tools and like it makes a much easier kind of adoption motion for the customers that we've got so i think like building in an open fashion has been has been really beneficial to us
2: great and how about a uh, mistake that you made the decision that made that you learned oh man that where was wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: where, where do i start um i mean going back to the like you know i wish that we had asked our design partners to pay you know up front and like basically put some skin in the game you know i think we didn't get quite as much feedback as we would have liked even from those like early alpha customers partly because we weren't charging them like you know there was no like risk or reason for them to deeply engage until the product was ready. And so they were able to be kind of like, you know, a little bit less aggressive in giving feedback. And so it slowed down our pace of learning in the early days. So, you know, I think that's probably the, the biggest one that I would, I would call out that jumps to mind, but we've made so many along the way.
2: In the early days, what kind of like, was some of your biggest fear?
0: I mean, the biggest fear that I've had, you know, the early days and even now is just that, you know, this is such a big problem. Like, you know, the go-to-market process touches every single team cross-functionally, so it's a lot of surface area in, you know, both the product and you know the like teams that are involved in buying decisions. And like, can you know, is it even a solvable problem? Like, you know, we feel like we've got a pretty good solution here, and like, you know, our customers tell us that we do, but many companies like there is so much dysfunction process wise internally around this that oftentimes like it is a tool problem and I fundamentally believe that like with the right tooling you can solve those process problems you know much more effectively but it's perceived oftentimes as a people problem and so you know I think the thing that scared me then and and like continues to scare me forever you know like it's never going to go away is is the idea that like you know maybe it, it's possible that the buying motion on this is going to be so cross functional that and so like there's so much that you kind of have to rip and replace process wise that it's just a hard tool for companies to buy you know on a on a regular basis and so you know that just slows down growth right but i think you know we we've kind of like cracked that nut recently so i you know i'm not like uh, nearly as worried about it as i was you know in the very early days but it's going to be a forever fear, you know, for us, I think.
2: <laughs> it's like a behavior changing software that you're selling, right? You need to change the behavior of how things work. And, and, it, and that's definitely a, a big risk. Like, will people change? And what can I do to influence their behavior beyond my tool? Like you say, because it's, it's definitely a, a risk and, and a risk that many founders have to deal with. So what are some of the strategies that, that work for you?
0: Yeah. I mean, so, so a lot of it is, you know, like onboarding education, you know, when we're, when we're bringing people on board, you know, like we'll, we have a whole onboarding guide that we've written out, you know, and and basically like helps kind of frame, like, look, don't try, you know, don't try and boil the ocean all at once, you know, like start with just your product marketing team and then gradually start rolling these other teams into the platform. So, you know, we try and kind of push people into a crawl, crawl, walk, run approach, I think, you know, also just modularizing the product itself and like modularizing the way that we price it, where, you know, you can buy the go-to-market product independently of buying the product management product. And you can buy that independently of buying the the research product. So, you know, it, it allows people a lot more kind of a la carte ability to select like which problems they want to solve out of the gate, which, you know, makes it a less daunting, you know, buying experience where they have, you know, it's not like, hey, you have to like totally overhaul the whole way your company is operating. It's like you can overhaul bits and pieces of it and then gradually start you know, improving the others over time.
2: It's a great strategy. And a company that I see use that strategy super well is HubSpot. Yeah. You start with like a $50 thing, and all of a sudden you're spending $1,000 a month with them <laughs> Because they keep like, how about this? How about this? Yeah. And it's an amazing strategy that I believe people... That again, I worry about the adoption problems. Should should follow. How is the company doing today? Anything that you can share about size, users, revenue, whatever is public information, and how the future looks like?
0: We don't share too much of that. You know, I can tell you we've got about like fourteen hundred companies on the platform now. You know, we've uh, team size is about fifteen folks. So you know, we've we've grown. You know, from like one you know two person shop a couple of years ago to you know now a pretty solid team and good customer base. You know, we've got large enterprises like Square and SmartRent using us and then we've got you know very small um a lot of like even smaller startups as well so you know range of company sizes and and verticals as well so you know folks in film and folks in saas folks in folks in film folks in cbg kind of all over the place so
2: that's great and and that's 15 people on the top of the agents or or 15 people with the the People from no, the it, it includes
0: them, like we, we count them as kind of part of our full-time team at the
2: moment. That's awesome. And how does the future look like?
0: Yeah, I mean, so the next like year or so, we're basically focusing on continuing to flesh out our integration ecosystem. We're building out, you know, some, a uh, lot of really cool AI stuff. So we're starting to layer in more automation in the platform. So, you know, we're basically taking GPT-3 and we're going to be doing things like auto summarization of competitive insights, of customer, you know, insights, helping to cascade that into, you know, automated generation of go to market plans and strategies. So a lot of really cool AI stuff coming down the pipe, you know, we're continuing to flush out the product management side of the house as well. And basically build, you know, more kind of roadmapping tools for the product teams that are collaborating in the platform. But you know, this year is all just grow, 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 and you know, like, start really cranking on revenue. So you know, we're, we're spending most of this year just, you know, focused mostly on customers
2: that's great and so I have one final question for you again thank you for sharing this story I, think, I feel like there's so much to learn here but there's one question that i like to ask every founder what is a book that you recommend for other founders like yourself
0: yeah I mean there's a whole bunch of them one that is a personal favorite is actually two i'll give i'll give you a couple and these are both positioning books because I'm a former product marketer and it's like what I you know find incredibly important especially for early stage startups one is obviously awesome by April Dunford, and then the other one is uh, Made to Stick. And you know, between those two, you know, I think most founders will walk away with a pretty killer ability to you know structure their narrative, which you know is critical to getting customers, is critical to getting you know investment, it's critical to getting press, like anything you want. So, so yeah,
2: I read Made to Stick, it's a great book. I love it. I'm gonna read the other one you recommended. <laughs> I'll pick that one up. And if people want to find you, learn more about your company, what's the best way to do?
0: Yeah. So our website is uh, haveignition.com. And, you know, if you want to reach out directly, my, uh, my email is Derek at haveignition.com. And, uh, you know, love to hear from folks directly.
2: Awesome. Again, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready to go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SAS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.